Welcome to Keeping It Green, a podcast for ornamental plant professionals and enthusiasts with hosts Margaret Pickoff and Tim Abbey. Hello and welcome to Keeping It Green, a podcast from Penn State Extension for ornamental plant professionals and enthusiasts. I'm one of your hosts, Margaret Pickoff. I'm a horticulture educator with Penn State Extension, and on each episode, I'm joined by my colleagues on the green industry team as co-hosts. On today's episode, my co-host is Tim Abbey. Hi, Tim. Hi, Margaret. It's been a while since I've seen you. How are you? I'm doing very well. Um, I'm glad to be here with you today. Um, On today's episode, we'll be joined by Mark Salou from Pride's Corner Farms. But before we get to our interview with Mark, we'll start out with a little check-in about what Tim and I are seeing, thinking about, working on at this time of year, which is uh, the early part of November. Um, And so I'm looking out my window today. We've got a very dreary, kind of rainy, gray fall day here in Philly. Um, Tim, what are you seeing or hearing about right now? I haven't had any site visit calls for quite some time. Things have kind of, you know, calmed down as far as like pest issues, plant issues, but um, it's still extremely dry here in the Harrisburg area. Um, I had the local weather on today and they, uh, where they take their reading or eight inches below for the year still with no mm-hmm. rain forecast for the next week. Uh, so that I think is, you know, following the stress from last year's drought that we had um, I think next growing season, we could see, you know, more issues with some of our longer established, uh, you know, trees in the area, but, you know, it's been fairly calm, just prepping programs, educational programs for next year is mostly where I've been spending my time. Yeah. I find, uh, a, a lot of people who, um, hear, you know, about what my work is they're kind of like oh so do you just get to kind of chill out in the winter (laughs) must be a really quiet (laughs) time and um i always uh find it funny because the winter is our biggest programming season and it's when we can actually uh you know get a hold of all of our our client base who are spending the rest of the year um out in the field or at their nurseries or in the landscape and so this is generally a really busy planning time. Um, I've actually gotten a couple of Christmas tree calls recently, and I've never really had Christmas tree calls before. Um, And I think I'm still kind of figuring out what's going on at a a couple of different places in the greater Philadelphia area. But I do think that the the dry weather that we've had in the last couple of seasons has probably been really stressful. And so um, I don't know that there's necessarily disease out there, but certainly some stress um, kind of to echo what you said about established trees, just kind of dealing with compounding stressors, starting with, yeah, lots of dry weather. Um, And so I have a feeling there's some pH and nutrient issues out there as well. But I thought that was funny. I got like two Christmas tree calls in one week. And so I'm having to learn a lot about Christmas trees all of a sudden, but it's exciting. Well, and when people think Christmas trees, they think downtown Philadelphia, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm glad that they found you. 
Yes, yes. It's always exciting when you get a question about something that you're not so familiar with, because it's a great excuse for us to then learn. And that's, you right. know, that's how we end up building our expertise on all these things. So I hope the the questions keep coming. Um, and in the meantime, we'll just be, uh, yeah, prepping for all these great um, events and programs happening over the winter. So no, we don't just chill out in the winter. I wish that we did, no. but <laughs> we have a lot going on. Um, all right. Well, it's it's really nice to check in with you and I hope we do get a good, nice rain, um, some good rain before the winter gets here. Um, so let's, let's bring on our guest for today's episode. Um, Mark Salou is the president and owner of Pride's Corner Farms in Lebanon, Connecticut. Am I saying Lebanon correctly or is it Lebanon? Nope, you said it just like you say in Pennsylvania. Okay, <laughs> I've been working on that. So I, I'm getting my Pennsylvania um, pronunciations down and I'm glad that it applies to Connecticut. Um, and so welcome to the show, Mark. We're so glad to have you today. Well, thank you for inviting me, uh, Margaret and Tim. It's nice. Hi, to Mark. It's good to see you again. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, so um, let's just start out. Um, well, maybe some of our uh, listeners are wondering, um, you know, why we're interviewing um, someone from Connecticut today. And so I'll maybe just <laughs> let Tim um, say a little bit about this connection. Not that we haven't had out-of-state um guests on before, but um, just to make the connection between uh, Pennsylvania and Connecticut. So Tim, do you want to give a little background there? Sure. So I, my first real job that I had was with the University of Connecticut Extension, and I was hired there in 1994 as the nursery IPM coordinator for the state, which, you know, through extension, which sounds really impressive, but I think Connecticut has what eight counties total, you know, it's, so statewide makes it, it, it's not like it's Texas or Alaska or anything, but um, in that role, I was to work with um, nurseries, like kind of a very intimate relationship, trying to help uh, improve like pest management with the goal of cutting down on pesticide applications. And um, I think I, my original nurseries that I work with were three. And one of those was Pride's Corner Farms that uh, I met with Mark and I don't remember all who um, I met with because it was so long ago, but they were willing to take a chance and work with this young guy who was in a new position and um, worked with them for a number of years. And then I would rotate to other nurseries. But the time that I was in Connecticut, you know, I stayed in touch with them and um, watched the nursery grow so much while I was there and it's done nothing but continue to grow since I left Connecticut almost 17 years ago. So I wanted to just reconnect with Mark and just see how things are at the nursery and talk uh, to him and get his insights into being the nursery business now for, I'm assuming it's probably over 30 years now. Um, so please correct me, Mark, if I'm wrong. Um, so that's, I reached out to him and he was gracious enough to join us. Well, I'm glad to be here. And is 30 is, uh, I wish it was, it's 44. Oh yeah. my goodness. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Time flies. Uh, it does. You know, we're having fun. It, you know, I don't know if it's always been fun, but it's, it's surely been a, a great journey. Yeah. Mark, could you tell us a little bit about Pride's Corner Farms and um, what your role is there? Sure. Uh, well, uh, you know, Pride's Corner, uh, as I said, 44 years uh, 
uh, and counting and, uh, you know, started uh, very, very small. We actually grew greenhouse tomatoes early and switched to rhododendrons and azaleas in 1980 and uh, just uh, kept at it. And when you when you stay at it long enough uh, and you I love plants and I love figuring out how to grow them. And and, you know, I, I learned uh, uh, a little more about how to be a, a, a good boss. You know, I was an OK boss early, but I, I got I think I got better at that. And I've been able to retain some incredibly talented people here at Pride's Corner. And today we have. Uh, 700 employees at our peak and uh we uh, have four locations all within the state i bought three other nurseries uh tim since you left uh Mullane's, uh robert baker's nursery in suffield and holdridge's oh, uh, nursery wow. so uh and we ship a lot of plants to pennsylvania pennsylvania is a great right. state great we have tremendous customers and partners in, in pennsylvania so you're doing field material now too along with containers no. Always stay in containers. Okay. Yeah. Never, never took the uh, the uh, the field uh, route. Okay. Well, that, I mean, that's again why I wanted to talk to you because that's you know you've seen a lot you know as you mentioned some other nurseries that for whatever reason you are no longer around and it's not just in Connecticut but other obviously other states that sure. um, you know you've continued to be successful and so um, you know this is a very broad ranging question but what do you think has been some of the keys to your success in the ornamental plant industry well i mean i, I honestly uh i i loved plants and uh uh i love growing figuring out how to grow everything so we grow over three thousand varieties you know that's great to say you grow all these varieties but you know that's just the beginning it gets people to pay attention to you but really what uh what uh, has been the difference for us has been a, a very customer focused approach. I, I'd say if, if there's anything that I would say is different, I, I see uh, uh, nurseries that don't put the customer first, they put their product first or the rules first. And I would say that's a difference that we've tried to strive for is always putting the customer first. And as I said, I've retained an incredible uh, team here. That's allowed us to grow. And, uh, it took us a while to get the quality to the consistency that, you know, particularly customers far away wanted. And, and we've been able to do that uh, uh, over the years. And and uh, recently we went to carts. We're shipping more and more plants on carts with the labor issues. People really love getting carts from us. And and the online ordering technology has been a huge uh, uh, factor in our growth recently in the last five years with uh, an ERP system with real numbers and people can go on at their leisure anytime and put an order in online. And uh, now they can put their pricing in for retail if they're a retailer. And generally we ship within 48 to 72 hours of any order we get. Wow. I want to just you, um, doing uh, all wholesale or is there some retail in there as well? No, all wholesale, all wholesale. strictly wholesale. Just want to go back to something you, you did mention about your employees. Uh, I was, uh, when I worked in Connecticut, I was there a little over 12 years. And uh, like, I think in all parts of the country with the green industry, there's a high turnover of you know people, whether it's in wholesale nurseries or landscaping companies. But I, but I know from my interactions with you when I was there that, you know, a number of employees were there that whole time. 12 years yeah. that I, I was in Connecticut and I know they were there before I came to Connecticut. And 
you know, I think that really is a testament that you were able to keep, as you said, those good employees because they have that historical knowledge, you know, for how things work there and they they understand what the mission of the you know, your business is. Yeah. Um, I'm sure some of them have retired now or, you know, are gone because, you know, but uh that was always one thing that stood out. Um, yeah. you know, you kept yeah, those I'm glad you I'm glad you saw that. We did have uh one uh uh, very difficult. I don't want to call it a black swan event, but uh, you know, the, you know, it's it's always interesting to hear how people respond to uh, uh, problems or big big issues. And we had uh, 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 an ICE audit uh, twelve years ago, uh, where you know, Immigration Customs Enforcement uh, came in and uh, audited our 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 I nines, and uh, <clears throat> uh, we lost. Uh, 150 employees in May of that, of spring of 2012. And uh, that was a, a real, real difficult for us. Uh, and uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, m many of them, they weren't deported. They were just asked. We just, we just had to let them go. Mm -hmm. Most of them stayed. A few went back to their respective countries. Uh, but uh, that, that was a, uh, 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 that, put us on a different route for our labor force where we use now the guest worker program called H2A. And we have over 300 H2A. So of the 700 workers, 300 are guest workers. Hmm. And uh, those 300 guest workers really um, uh, make us a better employer because all my section growers, uh, foremen, supervisors now have a, a labor force that's very, uh, uh, wants to be here, wants to work and work hard and, uh, you know, it's uh, we're, it's allowed us to perform and and really execute at a very very uh, higher level as a result of really everybody at Pride's from uh, the labor up to the top is is doing really good work. We don't really have a dead weight at all at Pride's, which I'm I'm very proud of. You think labor's still um, in the top three of like the the issues you have to deal with as a business? No. Oh, okay. So that's uh that's where it's different that's, that's because that's awesome. of the H but because of the H two A program. Okay. If I had to hire local workers for those three hundred workers, uh, uh, that would be uh, difficult. Is is an understatement? <laughs> okay, so yeah, that's, that's, that's maybe impossible, and and to get them, you know, with proper work work authorization would make it even doubly difficult. So, anyways, uh, uh, you know. Um, you know, you just have to be a great employer. You know, I talked to a lot of garden centers about help issues. There's a lot of, you know, they're, they're, they're really, it's really difficult to, uh, we hear it from our customers all over the place. So, you know, we're, we're kind of an anomaly, but you know, I, and, and, and I, as I explained to you, but I always say that, you know, the flexibility that we have as a company today is almost triple what it was 10 years ago. And, uh, uh, and COVID even amplified that even more. And I just feel that everyone has to be incredibly flexible as an employer now. To be an employer of choice is what I say. If you're not, you know, you got to have fair wages. I think wages have gone up and, and you know, and, and the family business culture is really good in many uh, of the businesses. And that's a really great culture. I, I feel very strongly about that at Pride's. But the flexibility is is a is a when I see that's uh, I see a lot of different viewpoints of what flexibility means to many different employers, and uh, I always say 
you can't be flexible enough. That sounds a little controversial, maybe, but I just like to say that. But if it's you know if it's working for you and you're retaining employees and you're still being profitable, then it's a system that has tremendous. It's working. For, it's working for Pride's Corner. Yes, it right. is. Yeah, because I think between the, you know the, myself and Margaret and the two other extension educators who are kind of lurking in the background today, um, you know, when we interact with our clientele. Like usually, like the top two things that they deal with or want help with are pest related issues, and yeah. then it's business labor issues I know. which is way outside of my wheelhouse to help with you know running a business or you know labor so that's that's a positive thing to hear that you know at least you, you've found a system and it's working for you yes so as as extension educators we're always interested too in how businesses um educate and train their workforce and so i wonder you know do you do you um, seek out uh, education um, externally? Do you do training internally? How do you make sure that your workers are not only trained, but continuing in their professional yeah. development and learning the latest yeah. uh, skills and, and things that they need to be successful? Yeah. Uh, well, it's multi-pronged, Margaret. I mean, we, we definitely need some outside help and we work with uh, UConn and UConn Extension to to do continuing education, particularly in this in the uh, winter, we do a lot of uh, of uh, you know pests and disease management. Well, uh, um, and that's that's been helpful. Uh, you know, some of our vendors, you know, uh, BASF and that Valiant. You know, there's a lot of those biofungicides and biopesticides that we're really working on that I find very interesting. And so there's a lot of uh, there's a big change there in chemistry that we're using to to try to, you know, keep powdery mildew down or, or boxwood blight. We have, we have to have very strong disease and pest prevention programs, uh, that, uh, keep us pest free. And, um, uh, I'm, I'm looking to do it with, uh, uh, with more of those biofungicides and bio pesticides. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm don't, don't ask me a lot about that, but I, I'm very intrigued <laughs> by them. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely some uh, some cutting edge stuff that we're we're all interested in as well. Yeah. Um, and but it just occurs to me um, that you know, as as an employee of somebody, you know, it's very that that is a a good way, hopefully, to increase retention is um, or you would think it is to invest in in the training and the skills and um, the sort of building of the development of somebody professionally um, over time. And so it's, um, that's kind of why I was curious about that as part of your, your system yeah. of, of mean, hanging on to the best folks. The people want to learn. That's what I always hear. I like, I like my job when I'm learning stuff. And so that's uh, something that we really focus on too. You know, mm-hmm. everyone gets a mentor. We're onboarding better than we used to. We used to bring someone on and, Show them a video about not, you know, not poisoning yourself because of, of, of all the pesticides. We, I always love that. I, I, I shouldn't say I love that. I, I love, hate the video. We have to do it. It's, a, it's the rule. But we have an onboarding video. We give them all kinds of swag. And then we check in with them every month the first year. We found out that most of our turnover is with new employees. If we can keep them for a couple of years. The chances of them staying, retaining, and you know, growing and be, and it becoming a career are much higher. So, 
we actually were not doing a good enough job of paying attention early in that person's uh, uh, time of starting their career at Prize. As the nursery's grown uh, in terms of like just the volume of plant material that you're turning over, are how much of that is done like in house, whether you know from seed or cutting propagation, uh, versus like what you have to buy in? Yeah. No, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's multi-pronged again, uh, Tim, we have our own tissue culture lab. I love growing Mount Laurel. We had a, a lab when you were here, but we just put a new lab in. I'm very excited about it. You know, you can't propagate Mount Laurel from cuttings, as you know, and, and seeds too slow. So we have uh, a lot of, uh, it's a signature plant for us, Mount Laurel and, mm-hmm. you know, it's a state flower, Pennsylvania and Connecticut. And, you know, I would say that when a, a uh, company, uh, a garden center, particularly further away, uh, says, why buy from Pride's Corner? You know, you got, you have a good looking, uh, Calmia that, that, that really helps them at least, uh, pay attention to it. So, uh, I'm, I'm, we, uh, we stick, I think I, I, I actually, uh, we stick about 13 million cuttings here a year. Uh, the perennials all come from Central America and South America. So we almost take no cuttings off our own perennial stock. We get them in from those uh, uh, unrooted cutting farms from, you know, that are, are all through Central and South America. They, uh, we get cuttings in every every Monday or Tuesday, and we're sticking perennials 12 months a year. Uh, wow. So that's uh, interesting. Yeah, the, as far as a global supply chain, you know, with the perennials, uh, Woody's is much more internally, you know, we get most of our cuttings off our own stock and and uh, and and uh, what's an interesting trend too is straight species with native plants. I was the old style. I always had to find that cultivar, nativar. You know, nativar is like a dirty word now. You can't say that; you get in trouble. <laughs> and uh, so we're looking for uh, uh, more straight species and doing more of that because the native plant movement is just exploding for us. We um, I own with Steve Castorani. Uh, at North Creek Nurseries, American Beauties, Native Plants. And uh, it's been a, a real fun ride recently. And uh, again, was- you know, uh, Junipers Virginiana, I was always buying, I was always trying to propagate a selection, you know, Brody or Taylor. And right now what everyone wants is the straight Virginiana. So uh, we got to pay attention to the marketplace. I was going to ask yeah. about oh. No, I was just going to say that's a cool connection with one of our, our, uh, regional, uh, very well-known native plant nurseries here in North Creek. Um, I didn't realize yeah. that you had that connection. Um, and one of my questions was going to be about um, the plants you grow and how that stock has kind of shifted over time. And I was going to um, sort of anticipate you saying that there was more of a, of a, um, yeah, a drive to, to produce more natives um, and, I'm curious, you know, does that, I guess it, it's coming from your customers who are wholesale customers, but they must be getting that feedback from their retail customers or homeowners or whoever they're working with. Um, but um, yeah, kind of curious to hear, how does that work? So how, <laughs> how do you decide when to increase inventory of a certain type of plant oh, or um Maybe that's too big of a question, but well, you know how how does that information make yeah. its way to you? Like, hey, we should really be um, investing more in natives and straight species natives in particular because this is what our customers want. 
Well, I mean, you know, I mean, uh, picking what to grow is we never pick the right amount. I always say to anyone who's doing production planning or price, remember, you'll either grow too much or too little of a plant. So don't sweat, you know, just make sure you're, 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 you're paying attention. But, uh, I, I would say that, uh, um, uh, the, the particularly straight species movement is, is really strong, uh, in the commercial landscape space, uh, even more so than with the homeowners. The homeowners are, are, are somewhat interested in straight species. You know, our American beauty program has a lot of selections, and we have to do a better job of, of, of telling people that these selections of native of straight species are actually uh, have the integrity or the same ecosystem value as the straight species. You know, Phlox paniculata jenna. Steve Castaroni, the owner, always says to me that has more pollinator value than the straight paniculata. So, you know, it's uh, but there's strong opinions and everyone has that. But uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of uh, I would say the other trend on what we grow and how we grow it is with brands. Uh, along with native plants, proven winners the end of the summer, knockout. You know, there's another company in Pennsylvania we do a lot of business with, Star Roses. Uh, brands have been a, a, a big part of our growth as well. Uh, the initially everyone thought it was, uh, you know, a, a conspiracy by growers to get more money for their plants, but it, it really wasn't. There really were better plants there, and they're particularly better now because everyone is vetting those 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 new introductions. I think very well. You know, everyone has their opinions on that, but uh, um, it's been amazing the explosive growth of. Of, of of brands, particularly proven winners and the summer and knockout and how much it's added value to our industry. That's what I, we are getting more money for our plants. I am and, the, and our customers are. And it's added a, a, a tremendous amount of, uh, of, again, value to our industry. I'm going to admit some of my own ignorance here. Um, I think the first time that I became aware of like the proven winners series if that's the proper name for it, um was still when i was in connecticut and i think it was when you got involved with it and i don't know if somebody from prides presented on it or just from interacting how how do those things work like how um you know because you're involved with that and the american beauties and so many other those branding things how do you search them out or do i mean because you were involved with the american beauties from the start yeah. um yeah, I mean, uh, the difference with American Beauty is it's not proprietary plants. So okay. it's it's more of a belief system that we have. All the other brands are proprietary plants that we pay a royalty on that they control the access and the propagation of it. So it, it, it's very different. Uh, Proven Winners is is run by a company out in uh, Western Michigan, Spring Meadow Nursery, Dale Deppie and Tim Wood. Uh, have searched the world for plants. They have their own breeding program. So they are only introducing approval winners, Tim, uh, brand new plants uh, that are all protected by patents and royalties. What's the turnaround time on that from like when they start to propagate it till when it's actually like in heavy production and out for like retail sale? I'd say about 10 years. Isn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, it's a long time. Yeah. People don't realize that, but uh they invite garden centers out there. Any garden centers listening to this, they should go out to that garden center uh, open house they have every August at Spring Meadow. And garden centers we've we've asked to go out there. We're just amazed at the at the at the amount of work and vetting and and time it took to really 
select what they do. I mean, you know, right now they have a success problem, I'd say, and this is my, I'm giving you a very opinion opinion here, but there's almost too many hydrangeas right now. And with Julia and Spirea, and you know, wow, uh, we need more plants with a purpose. I, I like to say, and 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 uh, we don't need another pretty pink hydrangea. And I think I, I sh- but the the industry shares that sentiment right now. This is a completely different line of questioning here. Uh, this is something like that again. All of us, you know, involved with the podcast today and other extension educators is one of the challenges that we've seen on our own and have had people bring to us is trying to get uh, a younger generation like and this is going into like you know middle school high school early college um, interested in horticulture as a profession whether it's doing what you do as a grower or what we do is an education any insights that you have that we could try to spurn people into this industry Oh boy, Tim, that's a there. There's a good question. There are less people going to college to study horticulture, and horticulture yeah. programs are kind of dying on the vine. I mean, they really are. They've all gone to, you know. Uh, we try to hire. Uh, we go to an open house at UConn. We're, we're, we heavily recruit at UConn, and we're lucky to get one one grad a year there. Honestly, wow. and so. That that is a challenge. I I have to tell you, it it, it really is. And, yeah, I don't uh, know if younger I, people just they get no exposure to it from their parents or any other sort of like uh, no. advisory person in their life where they they just think of horticulture as like going out to mow grass. I guess I'm I'm you know this is my yeah, thoughts on this. Like they can't they don't see it as a uh, rewarding, financially profitable way to make a living. And so they just discount it before actually even exploring it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The good news is the young consumer is going to the garden centers. I've heard that again and again, that mm. the millennials like to garden. We, whether COVID. we do. Is that, is that true? <laughs> yeah, we do. And my friends do too. And I was, I was just thinking, you know, cause you use that, that term plant with a purpose. And I kind of wonder if that's not part of the, the solution is, I think, um, and I don't know that my generation or Gen Z or anyone younger, um, I can't speak for everyone, obviously, but it seems as though people are, um, you know, looking for purpose in their, in their work as well. And there is a lot of interest in ecological gardening and natives and providing resources for wildlife and also how that crosses into you know, social justice issues and the wider community. How can we use horticulture to help our neighbors? And I don't, I don't know exactly how, <laughs> how you incorporate that into the, the day-to-day work of horticulture. But I, I think that it's possible. And I kind of wonder if that's that's part of the, um, that has to be part of the sell to this these new generations about yeah. the the work um beyond you know it's it it pays well and provides you know these benefits and is um you know sustainable on your body and things like that but um certain yeah it's it's an issue but i do think there is hope there that you know my yeah. generation and younger people are going to the garden centers it starts with houseplants and then <laughs> they get hooked <laughs> um and expand beyond that but yeah i can say for sure we're we're uh, the the 
you know, people my age who I know are very, especially after the pandemic, very interested in plants where maybe they weren't before. Yeah. So there's hope there. There is. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was kind of also curious about um, in terms of how you kind of keep your finger on the pulse of what's happening in the industry and new trends, if um, trade associations or professional organizations were important to you, um, like the per uh, Perennial Plant Association or some of those um, organizations, I know I've gotten a lot of inspiration by attending those meetings and seeing what the plant of the year is and what the kind of the trends look like have you found that to be helpful yeah. in your business absolutely margaret i i would say that's we you have to have that outward focus a lot of people become too inward and i can't tell you enough ppa uh, ipps uh we 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 have uh active uh people at all these meetings and uh um uh you know uh and I, I, I like to get people out visiting our customers, too. Uh, so that's always a good thing as well. But uh, very, very important. One thing that we were talking about um, before we started recording, that one of the challenges that, you know, you deal with and then and other growers and then also just landscaping people is the um, issue of some of like the invasive pests that we yes. we deal with, um, you know, in Pennsylvania. And I know now in Connecticut, um, you're dealing with like spot and lantern fly, but you had mentioned before we came on with like uh, box tree moth um, being found up in Massachusetts. It's it's a challenge that I think is an educator trying to reach people um, early is the best one of the best things that we can do as far as like on our end. Um, but I think the challenge we run into also is just, as you mentioned, like horticulture is not a field that a lot of younger people are going into. I also think that, um, you know, like either like extension educator or like a regulatory official, um, you know, like here it's the Pennsylvania Department of Ag and up, um, I think in Connecticut was the Department of Environmental Protection who do like the the regulatory work to try to combat these issues. I just think there's like a shortage of staff Um I guess I'm looking for two things. One, if there's any insights you have, like how we can do a better job of trying to reach people about the impact that ex exotic species have on the green industry. And then also what, what are some of the, how do you meet these challenges yeah. as a business? Well, this box with tree moth, uh, tree moth is, is really, uh, an inc I mean, I thought boxwood blight was going to be a, a, a game changer. We've managed boxwood blight. It's managed. Uh, we're inspected. We signed compliance agreements with respective states, including Pennsylvania. And I feel like it's it's kind of, but it's 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 not it's not something that's uh, uh, both uh, really reducing demand for the product or you know we have it under control. The moth is a completely different entity right now because it's federally uh, regulated. And I would say that the challenge for us is industry, government, and extension has to come together with these serious pests and really come up with what is going to be the best uh, solution going forward. Right now, Massachusetts, as I said, uh, quarantined the entire state effective this spring because the state didn't have the resources to monitor the pests statewide. And it's only in Cape Cod. Uh, if that happened in Connecticut, if they find the moth in one corner of Connecticut and, and then they quarantined the entire state, that would be uh, 
that would impact us in the million. That would have multi-million dollars of uh, impact to Pride's Corner. This, this, this is. Uh, I, I don't know what the solution is. I, I feel that I should be able to. I guess the only thing I would say as a as a grower that I I have to I have to make sure I'm boxwood my moth free and I'm inspected and I'm, and I sign compliance agreements and but I should be allowed to ship those plants where I want to. That's that that's. Uh, I don't know if that sounds selfish, but uh, right now, uh, because of the, the multi-million dollar uh, size of the market for boxwood, uh, w- there's there's got to be some innovative solutions uh, that really start in Washington there because of the, fe- the federal regulations. Yeah, I think, um, as I think all of us know, I mean, that's the challenge, whether it's on a, on a federal or just like a state level, that a lot of times with... Um, and I'm like with a background in entomology, I think of insects before I think of pathogens. You know, it's by the time you get anybody to really care, and by care, I mean you like invest money into trying to come up with like research to control it or learn more about a particular pest. It's past the stage where you really could have eliminated the problem, possibly eliminated yeah. it. And that's it was the same thing, you know, I think with like spot and lantern fly here, you know, it was. It was detected. It was, you know, yeah. it was brought to everybody's attention. But at that point, it still really hadn't caused any sort of damage yet. So nobody really, and by I mean, like more, right, you know, higher up who had the purse strings, nobody really cared too much. So not a lot went into it early on, and then it continued well, to spread. Is that yeah, that know. impacted horticulture? Uh, in in I mean, or what has been the impact of spotted lanternfly? I mean, I know that. The epicenter was southeastern Pennsylvania. So, is it? Is yeah, it a- um, and Margaret and I are like the closest to like where it started. Um, and I was here when it was first detected. And you know, there's quarantine counties in Pennsylvania where you have to go through the compliance, and you also are supposed to go through training on how to do like you know vehicle inspections, equipment inspections before you you know you travel either within a quarantine county or going to one that's not quarantined, particularly for like adults. So you're not moving adults around. And I think most people have fallen in line and of doing, you know, what they have to, as far as like, just like you've had to, you know, do that for some of the pests you deal with. Actual impact on the horticulture industry. Um, I have not seen it be an impact on ornamental plants, whether those are in a landscape or in a nursery. I've had them at my house. They've never done any sort of damage. Um, the only place where that I'm aware of, at least in Pennsylvania, and I think in other states, is there there have been some vineyards who've had significant losses of plant material yeah. um, because grapes, whether they're cultivated or wild, are like one of their favorite host plants. So definitely for them, they've been an issue. But yeah, there's a fairly new paper that came out of some uh, one of the Penn State labs working on it where they looked at kind of like some long-term impacts on like hardwood trees and that there was no significant negative impact on tree health. So maybe it's oh, not going to be an issue, but with like box tree moth caterpillars, I mean, they're, they decimate, I mean, they strip foliage and plants are going to end up dying. So yes, different pest complex, I guess, or damage. Let's have Something a great that solution. We, that um, Mark, you mentioned quickly, I think before we started recording, when we were talking about box tree moth is, um, you know, boxwood has a lot of uh, pest pressures on it right now. And I think um, 
something we've talked about in previous podcast episodes is these plants that we rely really, really heavily on to perform lots of different functions in the landscape. And boxwood is a perfect example because it's used, you know, to uh, as a, a hedge, it's used to demarcate um, areas. It can be pruned in various ways. It can be tall, short. Um, it's just used so heavily. Um, and as somebody who who enjoys learning about native plants and different sorts of plants that are maybe underutilized, my first thought is, well, you know, let's replace it with something else. Um, you know, but you brought up, you know, what what's out there that could be used to replace all of the functions that something like boxwood or, you know, we're starting to see stressors on arborvitae, which is also really key in our landscapes here. Um, it's not always easy to swap out these sort of landscape staples with different plants, although it's, uh, you know, maybe that's part of the solution um, is we need a backup or a bunch of backups to be able to use in the landscape instead. But have you come across any plants that um, might might do the trick in some one way or the other? Well, I hate to mention one. Because uh, it's not one of my favorite plants, but globe arborvitae. I mean, you know, God, the deer love them. Yeah. But, <laughs> so I don't know. That there, there you go, Margaret. That's a pretty poor alternative. Uh, yeah. Know, <laughs> it's a personal one. I'm not a globe arborvitae fan, but yeah, uh, there's some dwarf uh, uh, variety selections in, uh, you know, Ilex glabra. Mm -hmm. We got a, a selection from Michael Durr. Uh, that we introduced uh, that we, we really like it, a really dwarf one that's really good. It was selected out of Peggy's Cove in in uh, in, in Canada, I think I think in Nova Scotia. Hmm. They call it Forever Emerald. Yeah, I'm something um, this kind of makes me think of uh, another instance that is sort of similar in that it has to do with invasive species. But um, I give a lot of talks about invasive plants and our Pennsylvania noxious weed list, um, which is ever expanding and puts, uh, you know, certain restrictions on plants that can't be sold or propagated or transported within Pennsylvania um, because they've there's been some demonstrated sure. um, aggressive invasive tendencies that have a, a bad uh, outcome for our economy or human health or whatever it is, ecology. Um, and but what we're what we're seeing is when plants are added to this list, um, you know, nurseries are are notified by the Department of Agriculture, and they have a certain period of time to decrease their inventory. Um, but the process there is a process for exemption, where you the plant breeder has to um, send in a lot of information to the PDA that shows that whatever their cultivar is that they've developed of the species that's on the noxious weed list it does not is does not have the same invasive tendencies as the straight species um, but we have nurseries you know in our state that rely that you know for example sell a lot of burning bush euonymus elatus and um, oh. they have cultivars that from their experiences they know are not um, at nearly as invasive as the straight species but uh, the exemption process kind of puts the 
burden in some ways, um, or at least this is what it seems like to the nursery owners I've spoken to on, on them to kind of figure out how, how do we get this plant, which I know isn't that invasive, <laughs> uh, to be exempt from, from this list. Yeah. And they kind of have to go through the grunt work of contacting the plant breeder and getting this information and getting it. Um, and so I, I, you know, I know that's a, an issue as well is, is, I, I wish that at extension we could take some of that burden <laughs> off, but um, as far as dealing with invasive insects and plants, um, it, it, I mean, it just seems difficult in, in a lot of different ways on the actual industry and on the people who are selling these plants for a living. Yeah, no doubt. We actually got a cultivar exemption in Pennsylvania for a barberry that was bred at, um, at University of Connecticut. Yes, yes. And back to um, uh, this, the, uh, the uh, as you say, uh, some of your colleagues in Pennsylvania see some sterility in, in burning bush. What we learned is, uh, you know, we had a scientific paper that authenticated, uh, you know, on, at a university level, a peer-reviewed article that, that gave us the credibility to know that this barberry was truly sterile. Yep. Uh, and that's the only way you get the cultivar exemption as you alluded to <laughs> right and right now those i think there are four cultivars um that are that have that exemption um Correct. status and it's only for barberry that's the only plant that has any exempt cultivars at this point but hopefully the list grows and um you know it's it's seen as a, a priority to keep that scientific information coming um, that shows that these cultivars are Absolutely. not as nefarious as their straight species are um, well, so we're kind of getting towards the end of our time here with you, Mark. Um, and so Tim, did you have any, any last questions we should ask Mark before we get to our final question? I didn't have any questions, but if, um, there's anybody still at Pride's that was there from my time there, tell them I said, hi, I don't know. I think Sebby's <laughs> still, I think Sebby's still working there. Sebby's still going strong, Tim. Is he? Yes, yeah. Yes, well, yes. tell him I said, hi. I, I, I will miss definitely him. do that. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's been so great to uh, to have you on. And we have a final question for you, which we ask all of our guests at the end of our episode, which is, um, could you tell us something you like to do when you're not working? <laughs> well, I do do like something much uh, that I try to do, and I'll be I'll, I'll be doing it tomorrow morning. I'm I'm a mountain biker. Oh, that's I right, love man. being in the woods. I love the. Uh, the challenge of it, the camaraderie, you know, I've got a, a couple of guys I go with all the time and uh, I've been to Utah, Scotland, Colorado, but I still say my, the mountain biking here in Southern in Connecticut is, is the best. I've always wanted to go to like a place like Jim Thorpe and I know there's good mountain biking around there, but uh, yep. keeps me young, keeps me, uh, keeps me uh, with the uh, ener energy that you need, you, you really need. Awesome. That's great. Yeah, it must be a beautiful time of year to get in some good rides before oh, it gets yeah. too wintry up there. Yeah. Um, great. Well, thank you so much, Mark. We really appreciate you coming on the podcast today and and sharing about Pride's Corner and um, the work you do up there. So um, thank you. Thank you, thank Mark. You. Yeah. Good to see you, Tim, again. And nice yep. meeting you, Margaret. Yes. You too. <laughs> All right. Take care. Bye.